Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to In Conversation, a podcast collaboration between our friends at Oxford University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. And today we're lucky to be talking to Jonathan Holloway about his book, The Cause of Freedom, A Concise History of African-Americans, just out from OUP. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Great. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I, 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 I'm newly in this position as president of Rutgers University, uh, all of seven months. Um, so that's been an interesting time to start a new job. And in my spare time, such as it is, I try to stay involved as a historian. That, that is concise. And <laughs> as I said before, being a university president, you must be very busy. Uh, very busy, yes. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed your book, and in fact, I bought two copies of it for my teenage kids. Uh, oh, wow. This book has it. Ha- well, it has a great virtue. It's short. Yes. And you know, kids, right? Yes. But it, it does a wonderful job of taking the reader through the experience of African Americans in, in a in a in a very concise way. I just like that word concise. So, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed the book, and. You begin it by saying that telling the story of uh, African Americans or the story that African American historians often tell begins with the question, what does it mean to be an American? But you point out that that's really not the quite quite the right question for the totality of the African American experience. And rather, you ask three questions in the introduction, um, one that confronted African Americans in the three different periods. And uh, I'd like to address each of these questions in turn. So first, in regards to the colonial period, you ask, the right question to ask there is, what does it mean to be a human? Yes. And, you know, at this time, African-Americans were not considered human. And there's a paradox here because the colonists were, for the most part, Christian. So I'm interested in hearing you talk about how they justified racialized slavery. Yeah, thank you. I mean, they're, they're, it gets a little bit slippery. I mean, yes, many of the colonists and devout Christians recognize that Africans, and that's really the proper phrase to use about them, title to use about them then, were humans, but of a lower order. Now, some absolutely didn't think they were human. So there's a, I don't want to paint it as so extreme. They thought they were brute animals. They thought they were brute, brute people. Um, but because of their lower intelligence, their lower intellectual capacity, I mean, this is their thinking, because of their pagan backgrounds, uh, they are so far removed from that um, space the colonists recognized as fully human. Uh, that was a way to rationalize um, the racialization of slavery. And I remember something about the curse of Ham. Is this, this is from long ago. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Go ahead. Well, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm no biblical scholar, but I know about the curse of Ham. And, and look, the, the Bible is filled with all kinds of contradictions internally. And people pick and choose the parts they want to um, invest meaning in to rationalize the choices they make as um, as individual actors, seems to me. Well, and there's a lot of slavery in the Bible, at least in the Old yes. Testament. So yes. they had plenty of material to call on. That's true. Um, so you, you point out that Atlantic slavery went well beyond American shores. Uh, how did American slavery fit into this larger picture? Um, by American slavery, you mean just in terms of how it was take took shape and what we now call the U.S.? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Okay, yeah, sure. 
So, I mean, because the, 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 the nomenclature in this time gets very tricky because the U.S. doesn't yet exist. And then, it, you know, all that goes on from there. So, you know, the, the, the formation of slavery in the United States um, is not a new phenomenon. The formation of slavery is not a new phenomenon when it's expressed in the United States. It's been around for millennia, still around today in, in a variety of forms. Um, the, the, the formation of it in what becomes the United States is absolutely an outgrowth of what is, you know, commonly known now, and it's a little more complicated we know these days, but it's the triangle trade. You know, this process of raw goods into processed goods involving uh, Europe, uh, England, France, coastal Western Europe, um, the coastal Western Africa, and then the Caribbean, Brazil, the Caribbean, and what is the Eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, and what you have starting really in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, is the arrival of a trading vessel that had African slaves on it. And they, you know, they're basically, as far as we know, basically restocking. And these enslaved people were part of the, um, the barter. And that's the, the birthing moment of, of slavery in what becomes the U.S. But slavery was not racialized at first in the U.S. It was really more about servitude and the the European populate populate <laughs> populating um, of the Eastern Seaboard um, is really about indentured. I mean, for those people who are laborers, are indentured servants, uh, and you know, poor white English people. I mean, I'm speaking in broad strokes. So that's close sure. enough. Um, but once you start having Africans in the mix, and then Native Americans, indigenous people who are caught in different battles in the mix, then you start finding um, the emergence of rationale, uh, rationalizations, so that um, it becomes pragmatic to extend the length of servitude, which is traditionally seven years as for indentured servants, extend that longer for those people who look different. And this is now we're talking Africans and to a lesser extent, indigenous Americans. And, uh, and this is partly because the drying up of indigenous servitude on, on the European, as a, European side as a source of labor. So really very practical reasons were driving the formation of a racial um, rationale for hereditary slavery that ran along, uh, again, racial lines. So, you know, that that's the... I went on at some length, but that is the short version of how this this sort of the seeds get planted. And then depending on where you are in what becomes the U.S., the nature of slavery just looks very differently. In, in the Northeast, in colonial New England, it becomes more or less household slavery. Uh, and then as, as we all know, more famously, as you go down the Eastern seaboard and get down um, into, um, say, Maryland, Virginia, and beyond that, uh, especially if you're Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, get into plantation slavery over time. So slavery took different shapes in different places, largely driven by local economies and, and um, geography uh, in terms of what the land needed or required for sustenance. But the, rationaliza the rationalization of slavery uh, really starts when those first Africans arrive. The rationalization of racial slavery really begins when those first Africans arrive in 1619. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found this part of the book fascinating because I'm a historian of early modern Russia and the early modern Russians had slavery. It was not racial, racialized 
Russians enslaved other Russians. And it was not field slavery or plantation slavery. It was all household slavery, like in the Northeastern United States. There are many different ways in which these slave economies work, but this one became really embedded in the South. It became, if I understand you correctly, it, the, the use of that labor became a, a kind of fundamental input for the Southern economy. Is that right? That you, you've said it perfectly. That's right. Yeah. And you know, when people talk about, fast forwarding a bit, um, the Civil War is not about slavery, it's about the economy. I'm like, well, um, yes, <laughs> okay. It's the same thing. I mean, they are, yeah. they're deeply interwoven with one another. Yeah. It's interesting. I have a friend who says, tell me how people make their money and I'll tell you what they believe. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, exactly. and, and in this case, yeah. I mean, it really became the livelihood for the white slaveholders and they obviously were quite uh, enamored of it in some way. Um, so let's go on to the second period. And this is the Republican period. I'm not an American historian, so I might be getting the terminology wrong. And you say the question to be asked here is, uh, what does it mean to be a citizen? And let me frame that a little bit. Um, Africans at this time were not citizens in the full sense. I guess we can call them African-Americans at this point. And I'm just wondering how the framers, who were children of the Enlightenment, could justify <laughs> denying African-Americans full citizenship. Well, that's the million-dollar question, I mean, frankly. Um, you know, the, the founders were um, literally revolutionaries idealists and also deeply pragmatic in terms of forming, you know, forming a nation, right? And so their, their belief in how are they going to bring a geographically very dispersed set of colonies uh, together along the eastern seaboard, basically, how are they going to bring these, these economies, these scales, these political ideologies together in a way that can hold a country together? And they decided the pragmatic best choice was, you know, by preserving slavery in the founding documents, by counting uh, enslaved people as three-fifths three of a person, and right on down the line. And, you know, these were, in large measure, you know, these were wealthy people at the standard of the time, and, and slavery was a source of much of their wealth. Not universally now, I'm talking, but a great number of them um, uh, based their wealth on forced labor. So the contradictions oh my goodness, I mean, just abound. And there's been really tremendous scholarship on the topic of, of, of these ironies. Uh, the great historian now past, David Bryan Davis, um, you know, had a series of books of, you know, the problem of slavery in the Western world and in the, you know, talking about enlightenment values and how can you make sense of these things? And, and it really is a sort of a deep um, uh, rumination over belief systems that allow the rational rationalization of degradation, frankly. And in this case, so much of the colonist notion of what it mean, what it meant to be a citizen, I mean, that meant that you're a white male or that you're a male property owner. And that um, offered citizenship status. Now, the colonist at the moment of revolution in Concord, Massachusetts, where the birthplace of the revolution, were literally complaining to King George III about being um, slaves to the British crown, to English crown, that they were not granted their citizenship rights. While they were doing that, they were literally ignoring the slaves they owned in Concord. Uh, and um, one story that, that didn't make the book, because I had such tight word limits, was the story of this phenomenon as told through the history of a gentleman 
um, who was named John Jack, who um, was born in Africa, brought over to Colonial New England as a slave, um, taught a skill by his master, allowed to keep some money. He lives in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, buys his freedom, petitions to become a citizen, and is denied by the white citizens of Concord because he had once been in servitude, uh, basically making up rules on the spot. So there are deep, deep, deep ironies uh, about how we articulate um, the ideals of this republic, which are beautiful ideals, uh, and how do we make peace with that and the ideologies uh, that were really about structurally denying the ideals to a whole bunch of people. Um, but this is this is our nation. Yeah, th- this is something I find fascinating and I don't know, but I probably do it in some aspect of my life. That is the way in which I will accommodate something morally if it is practical. Yes. Or if it is necessary. Yes. And and I'm certain I do this. I can't figure out with what yet, but in a hundred years people will say, Marshall, right. rationalize this bad behavior yeah. because it was convenient for him. Well, or it yeah, was I mean pragmatically it's, warranted. It, it is the uh, you know, I remember having this really powerful moment. That, that, that is about the need for historians to be, um, to be humble um, because it is so tempting to look back at an earlier era and say, my God, they were crazy for doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it was. We would never do that. We've abandoned that. And okay, but you know, in 50 years, and heck, in 30 years, our kids will be saying, you drove cars that used gasoline? <laughs> or you even had a car? Or yeah. you ate meat? Yeah. You know, and so we just have to be we, we need to measure the past with an element, a look at the past with an element of grace, because we are all human actors and all we all um, uh, are imperfect. That doesn't mean we abandon our current values to say, wow, that was really wrong. I mean, that's that's also part of being human, you know, casting judgment. And that's something we don't want to replicate. And that's part of our perfectibility. But we are all deeply flawed. And that's that's what makes us fascinating subjects to study. I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned this because this is something when I was teaching history classes, I would always mention, you know, it's important to be on the right side of history, but you can't really ever tell what the right side of history is. So yeah. the, the example I always gave was zoos. There's something yeah. weird about uh, imprisoning animals. We even recognize this today. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that in 100 years, people will look back on me and say, that guy was a barbarian. Right. <laughs> he right. locked up animals. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I mean, again, it's hard to tell what it's going to be, but um, clearly from their perspective, they didn't know what it was going to be. So they acted right. in a pragmatic way and they tried to rationalize, as you put it, you know, what they were doing and what they felt they had to do. Um, I, I, I was particularly interested in your treatment of Lincoln, who I find absolutely fascinating. Yes. And you say that he was a pragmatist and really wanted to preserve the union. He was a complicated guy. Could you talk a little bit about him and particularly the way in which he came to full emancipation? Well, I, I mean, I actually, I think you, you summed up, maybe if you're summing up me, you summed up me. <laughs> oh, very see, I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, 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 you know, great figures, I mean, not even necessarily great figures, smart politicians, I think really are a mixture of some sort of idealism or, or some, you know, a vision. 
and they are able to marry that vision with um, a sense of okay, how how what do I need to what is the transactional process to get that vision realized or some measure of it? And you know you can run that to extremes where you have uh, autocrats who have a vision and don't care, and they will just make their thing happen, you know, by any means necessary. But you think of a, a, a great figure like Lincoln, and I do think he is a great figure, um, not a perfect figure, that's a difference, but a great figure is that he um, recognized that slavery, however it was articulated in the country, was, a, was, a, was deeply problematic, to use a more contemporary term, mm-hmm. that um, was a great flaw in the logic of the country. Now, was he the best friends of, for of African Americans, no, not by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he certainly wanted to. Um, he certainly wanted to um, remove the stain of slavery by removing Africans. I mean, that was his the first logic, the first sort of wishful thinking. Then he realized that's just impractical. I mean, that's just not gonna. That's not gonna happen. So, um, in any event, uh, uh, as he is fighting this war that I think he saw as an ugly inevitability because of the deep, deep divisions within the country. You know, he is the pragmatist, pragmatist, like, okay, what is it going to take to either, you know, um, galvanize the union to, you know, to fight in new ways? What is it going to take to move us toward a new peace? And it was always about um, reforming the unions, about, you know, reunification. And uh the i think it was getting harder and harder for lincoln to square the philosophical illogics as i as i would put it of slavery and what it, what it represents in this in in this country that's torn to bits and it certainly um it made it easier for lincoln to move away from an embrace of a reluctant embrace of the institution of slavery because he saw what was happening in the south and that there was a you know Deep, deeply flawed logic in the Southern economy and its own sustainability, uh, and with the um, the way it embraced slavery, it was it was basically self destructive. And so he starts listening to his more progressive colleagues about a way to shore up our um, our uh, our particular ideology relating to uh, abolition, and as a way to galvanize support and delineate the difference between the union and um, the Confederacy. And so that, you know, he, he starts moving towards a proclamation that would draw a bright line in the sand um, in, gosh, in, uh, I, say, I, I can't recall the exact date, but in September of 62, uh, you know, over the summer of 62, heading towards September declarations that leads up to January. So this is just a, 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 a kind of genius politician supporting deeply an ideology that he wants to realize because it means the, the preservation of the nation, uh, pursuing ideology, meaning emancipation, because he wants yeah. to use it as a vehicle, preserving the integrity of the nation at a very steep cost. And, uh, but it was the cost that he had to pay in order to, to realize this ambition. Right. Would it be fair to say that the Civil War was about slavery, but what Lincoln was doing was not? You see what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I can I can certainly see the argument for that. I think that that would, I have to work that through to think about all the logical implications of it. But 
at first glance, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the way I think about it. Um, and also, Lincoln is a great example of what we were just talking about. That is your inability or anyone's inability to be on the right side of history. Because by our lights, Lincoln was a racist. Yes. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. There's no there's no question about this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just find that completely but, but, fascinating. You know, but, our, but our phrasing is by our lights, right? I mean, that's right. By our lights. Yes. That's the important part. country is racist. <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, it was funny. I, you probably have followed this business about the Dr. Seuss books. Have you seen this? I've seen the headlines. I'm not Yeah, anyway, so the, the, the publishers of Dr. Seuss have removed six books because yeah. of racist imagery. And uh, the, the, the most interesting thing I, I heard someone say about this is that not that Dr. Seuss the author of Dr. Seuss, whose name somehow escapes me right now. Theodore Geisel. Uh, yeah, Theodore Geisel uh, was a racist, but that that there was any possibility that he could not be a racist at this time. I mean, everyone he was around held these attitudes. Yeah, I mean, so, reflecting a certain cultural sensibility that right. we would find shocking, just as we would find, well, not all of us, but many of us would find shocking depictions or expectations of, of women's labor in the house or of... Right. Right. Um, well, I mean, I can I can tell you. I mean, I'm I'm from Kansas originally, which isn't exactly the South, but my father of blessed memory used the N word in free flowing speech. Yes. I mean. Yep. I, I, <laughs> and I think back on that, and it's shocking to me, but he was a person of his time. Yeah. Um. So let's move to the the third period and the third question, and this is with regard to the post-Civil War era, Reconstruction yeah. and so on and so forth. And that is, you ask the question, what does it mean to be civilized? And I think that the thing you're getting at here is that for a lot of white Americans, and we have whiteness by this point, no question, yeah. that African-Americans could not be civilized. And I'm, I'm wondering how people who are committed to the equality promised in the now amended constitution could justify the oppression that they that they were essentially condoning. <laughs> well, that's I a mean, big you, one. You I know. Can justify anything. Frankly. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, if, if it provides you comfort, whether it's material or psychological, you can justify anything. I mean, I think that's that's part of our um, our challenge as human actors. Um, the look the the civilized question has actually stumped a few people. They said that seems like a strange. The timing seems strange. Like, well, yeah, I understand why that seems strange, but it really is a moment in the late 19th century. Um, the historian Gail Biederman wrote a great book on this called Manliness and Civilization, I think is what the title was. And she talks about as the country starts to industrialize, this is still an overwhelmingly agricultural country, but as it starts to industrialize in this post-Civil War, late 19th century, um, there is in a, in a an accruing status anxiety that runs along, you know, wh what does it mean to be a man? If you're just going into a factory and, and pulling a lever over and over again, is that a man? And at the same time, the nation is starting for the first time to, to flex what we would now call imperial muscles um, in, a, in a region going down in, into the Caribbean. And there is this sort of large or deep-seated ang increasing anxiety about what it meant to be masculine. And what starts to merge is a recalibration of what it means to be civilized. Like it, civilized behavior can now be seen as things that used to be the women's um, area, um, dressing properly, speaking properly, uh, being well-versed in literature. As, as people had leisure time, they had ways to express 
their hum, their complex humanity in new ways, and so the the, the anxiety starts to be uh, I don't know if absorbed is the right word, but reconfigured in a way that these are the things that civilized people do. And then, you know, going back to the colonial era logic, the notion of what was civilized, we rationalized by what you read in the Bible. Um, and then how you keep people in line who, um, who fall outside of your cultural norms. And so when it comes to African-Americans um, uh, during the era of Jim Crow, um, the, um, you really see in an aggressive form of um, imagery related to uh, the black male figure. The black male as a threat, as a criminal, as a racist, and all of these things demonstrate, because they are taken as true, that all of these things demonstrate that, that blacks could not be civilized because they are too prone to their animalistic urges. And this ideology, which sounds just so hard today, and like, well, these are clearly racist people who hated black folks. I have to say, hold on a second now. People who consider themselves friends of the race, and I use that That's right. instruction very intentionally, um, who really admired African-Americans still use that same kind of language. People who supported what becomes known as um, the New Negro Renaissance or the Harlem Renaissance, uh, some of its most important white benefactors talked about the native ability um, that that Africans, African-Americans had. Native being very important, that word. Um, they're, 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 um, that they were more in tuned with their cultural, their more feminine side um, than... Um, white European males that um, because they were closer to an animalistic state or they, they were most recently emerged from nature, I guess is the way it was phrased, um, that uh, they were much more in tune with the savage that's within every person, but has been civilized away in, in whites. So it's just, and this is a supporter of mm -hmm. African-Americans who saw that their cultural expression was, was natural and beauty, uh, beautiful and, um, and um, uncivilized. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you, you might even say this is not in the right context, but that they thought that white people were Apollonian and black people were Dionysian or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, it, it's in this frame that is in terms of civilization and civilization ability that separate but equal kind of seems intuitive, doesn't it? From the perspective of these white people. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is about, you know, protecting boundaries. I mean, the thing about, I mean, the equal part was the stretch. I mean, the separate part was something they wanted to embrace. But the funny thing is prior to the end of the civil war and the collapse of that, that institution, um, there was so much race mingling I mean, one in a literal sense in terms of just, you know, uh, sexual um, uh, degradation, um, domination, uh, so much race breeding, uh, race breeding, good grief, um, intermixing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got a but, tough job. Don't worry about it. But they thought about it as breeding. That's the thing. Um, yeah. Um, but then uh, so much racial intermixture. And then in the daily uh, social intercourse, white and blacks were always intersecting, but, but because of slavery, people knew who was in control. Um, when that de gets destabilized 
And then there's status anxiety and cultural anxiety starts to emerge because now these people are uncontrollable without controls. This is when Jim Crow merges. And then you start heading towards the separation of the races in every legalized way. Um, because the, because if you don't separate, separate the races, you have to deal with um, the possibility of humanity being expressed by Africans, African-Americans. And that could not be allowed to happen in the, in the full complexity of their humanity. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to wax biographical again, I remember I'm 59 and I remember when busing started, this is in Wichita, Kansas. And mm-hmm. uh, my mom was a teacher at the time and uh, she taught in what we would call an inner city segregate or uh, integrated school. But a lot of my friends, they suddenly were going to private schools. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I remember this very well. Like, where'd he go? Oh, he goes to right. Cape and Mount Carmel now. <laughs> well, and so what, what year would this have been in the late 60s? Or yeah, this would have been about 1968, 1967. Yeah. 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 So I have a similar kind of, well, almost similar kind of story. When we lived in Montgomery, Alabama, and my father's last posting in the Air Force, this was 1972 to 74. And I was on the Air Force Base Elementary school, Primary School. And then my, I'm the youngest of three. We all tested for admission to this school. I was too young to understand this. So in years later, I would find out. We all tested um, to be admitted into the Montgomery Academy. Um, and this was part of an, the U.S. Air Force's plan for my father's future. Uh, was, there's a longer story. I don't have time to get into it. That it was important that we all go to the Montgomery Academy. And it had been sorted out that the Academy would allow these black kids in if we tested in. And if we got admitted, we would, um, if we tested well and got admitted, we would have broken the color line of Montgomery Academy. It was wow. formed in the fifties as a result of Brown v. Board. Um, And so this is 1973 or 74, we would have enrolled, we would have been the first black kids at at one of the segregation academies. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. Actually, it's funny because I'm I'm from, I was born in Alabama um, on Redstone Arsenal. Uh, My goodness. Yeah, so we parallel there. So, and I guess it's important to point out too that the people that were thinking separate but equal Many of them, like my very well, you know, she's, she's a, my, my mother was a quite progressive person. They didn't think of this as a particularly bad thing. Yeah, that's right. And many blacks didn't either when it comes to education because they got a great education in some yeah, right. places. Yeah. But and and I mean, one of the one of the crimes of uh, I use these terms very advisedly. One of the the untold stories of Brown versus Board of Education is that when school systems desegregated, what did it mean? It meant closing the black school and it meant unemploying black teachers. And that led to a great destabilization in black communities because being a, being a yeah. teacher in a black community was a, was a position of stability and great responsibility and esteem. And now they were seen as unemployable by these formerly white school districts. Right. And, and now these black kids might, would, I mean, because there's no way the white kids are going to go to the black school. Um, and so these black kids were the ones who had to integrate and without any elders there to be mindful of their education or of the support network, they were exposed and, and, you know, had to deal with a very traumatic process of, of integrating these schools. Now I'm not sitting here saying Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. Goodness no, it was right. But, but it was going back to what we said earlier, a mixture of idealism and pragmatism. Um, Thurgood Marshall and his, and his colleagues were, were pointing out that, I mean, in a sense, they were saying, wink, wink, 
separation of race separation of the races will be fine if you can demonstrate that you can actually create an equal atmosphere. And the fact that black schools are so deeply underfunded that there is no way to catch up, even in a dozen years or 15 or 20 years, that the schools had to integrate. Yeah. Um, and so the notion of what a segregated school meant is, is more complicated than the narrative. And, and for me, it's really about resources. There is no way these school districts controlled by white school board members were going to provide the same resources to black schools as they were to white schools. There is no way. And if that's the case, the education providing black kids is criminal and um, criminally underfunded, criminally under-resourced, criminal. And that is the rationale for Brown versus Board, oversimplified, but that's essentially it. Yeah, that's right. Brown versus Board, Kansas, where yes. I was raised. Here we go. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about Marcus Garvey, because Marcus Garvey is one of my favorite historical figures. And my impression is that Garvey has who was a remarkable person, has not been given his due. Am yeah. I right about that? I think so. I mean, well, it depends on one's opinion. But yeah, yeah. He, uh, certainly there's much more to be known about him than we currently have out there. Yeah, because the thing that he was doing is very different than the thing that Martin Luther King did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it was an entirely different sort of context. Yeah. Um, I have an anecdote about Garvey, uh, which I learned from reading a book about Garvey and um, when he, he was from the Caribbean, is that right? Yes. And, yes, Jamaica. And so he, uh, he came to the United States for the first time and he traveled into the South and he was amazed at the deference that African-Americans showed white people. He yeah. just could not wrap his mind around it. Yeah. Because <laughs> where he was from, that didn't happen. That's right. And, and this disturbed him very much. So I mean, I wanna... Gar Garvey's really quite remarkable, um, you know, Remarkable in the sense that you you can see through Garvey a story of um, black transatlantic consciousness. I mean, growing up in a black world in in Jamaica yeah. uh, with black professionals, getting educated at the center of the um, uh, of the uh, of, of empire in England, um, and then coming back to Jamaica and like needing to make a world anew, essentially, and being completely confused by what he saw happening in the United States as he traveled around. It just, it didn't align with his sensibilities in Jamaica or in, um, in England. So, you know, he goes about and tries to set his agenda, which was a mixture of conservative um, uplift ideology and sort of radical by black ideology and, um, and, a, and also a level of Fantasia that was, almost like a con man um, in terms of, you know, trying to build a black fleet to colonize Africa and save Africans from themselves. So he's, he's, boy, is he complicated. Yeah, he is. There, there, there's a lot there. Um, and, and I, I've always, I've always been very interested in him, in him as a historical figure. Yeah. So um, I want to ask this question now at the closing of the book, you finally come to this question, what does it mean to be American? And, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the current political climate. And I understand historians don't like to make predictions, especially yeah. about the future, as my friend always says. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is my thought. Would it be wrong to say that we're on the cusp of a kind of second civil rights movement? Um, it would be, would it be wrong? I, I don't know if that it's wrong. I mean, I think that I think um, I would nuance it saying the potential is there. 
for being on the you know, the for being on the verge of something special. I mean the um you know the murders that we saw on our smartphones um in the spring of spring and summer of 2020 were not new as a phenomenon, but were new in I mean there's a whole history of racial violence in this country, but they were new in terms of the scale of dispersal of the imagery and the means of dispersing the imagery and the videos. I mean, that is just wholly different. And and um, the and marry that to the fact that we were in a pandemic and people were out of work and they had time to be upset. And and they were also inconvenienced in a way they hadn't been before. And in a way, quite unconsciously, I think, started to recognize, wait a second, people live like this all the time in terms yeah. of, you know, just day-to-day anxiety about how their bodies are controlled and policed. And um, so you think, I think you take all these things together and you have the, you know, the largest social movement this nation's ever seen. Now, is it fully coherent? No, but no movement ever was. I mean, it's romantic. These are, they are romanticized as being coherent, but something different really was happening in 2020 and carried over in today. The staying power is the big question. Now, um, the fact that you saw radical, I mean, really, radical changes in Atlanta, let's uh, excuse me, in, in Georgia, in terms of who they're sending to the Senate, by raised within majorities, but still sending them, that does speak to something afoot, especially in a state like Georgia that's doing everything it can to um, disempower people from actually having access to the ballot box. So if the movement, if this moment, which can feel inchoate because it's all in a smartphone, let's say, if that can be turned into the kinds of things that we saw Stacey Abrams do in Georgia, then you're on to something, I think. Um, because uh, large institutions are perfectly happy in many ways, letting people be unsettled and, and yelling at them and things like that. But when those yelling people actually start to mobilize along the lines of what how institutions are formed, like the ballot um, or using or their dollars, voting with their dollars, then you then something else is going to happen. Um, and we'll see. I mean, part of what may be signaling a change is the insurrection at the Capitol. I mean, my God, I never would have imagined something like that happened happening. I never could have imagined seeing the Confederate battle flag being carried proudly in the through the rotunda. That was a complete violation. I mean, I felt that as a complete violation. And the ways in which so many people in the country across racial lines said that that is un-American. That response gives me hope. Now, what makes me worried is that so many other people um, are buying into all the lies that are being circulated around it. But the, the fact that we are in tension on this issue, that things are getting very tense, is a signal that people are feeling the potential for change. You know, if they weren't, if they weren't so loud, the people who are resistant to change, if they weren't so loud, and I think in that way expressing their anxiety, uh, I think they'd be content to let, you know, these progressive activists act all crazy. What's the risk? Well, the risk is real now. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that I have difficulty doing, I, I, went to a completely integrated school and I had black friends and still do. And that from my perspective as a white person, I was just 
essentially totally unaware of most of this. Mm. I mean, I kind mm. of knew that it went on, but it's very hard for me to put myself in the mindset of somebody that doesn't want to see change. I, I yes. can't, I can't quite grasp it. And, and I understand that in order to progress, I have to do that. I have to see things from their eyes. And there, I mean, there are fellow citizens. They're, they're with us. That's but right. that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's a little bit like human psychology. I have a psychologist friend who says that you have to put someone in crisis before they can change. Right. And I think we're in crisis. I think so. And, uh, but like what comes of it, right? And I, and I really don't know. I mean, I, I thought for the longest time that, you know, various talking heads talking, uh, who would opine about the rise of fascism in the U.S. I'm like, that's a bit hyperbolic. I mean, yeah. things are messed up, but we're not, we're not at that point. But my God, in early January, I thought we may be at that point. Like I, I just, and I felt almost naive for not seeing it before because you play it back I'm like wow it's all there it is all there efforts to de delegitimize the vote for months i mean for me for me it was a complete misreading of a certain zeitgeist that i mean i'm like people are believing this stuff wait they actually believe this stuff and and that was an educated educative moment for me about the extent to which people are either hoodwinked or simply don't want to know um or are willing to rationalize anything. Yeah, I, I want to come back to Lincoln. And I, I think that m many human problems can be solved by good leadership. Yes. And Lincoln was a great, brilliant pragmatist. And yep. I just feel a hunger in the United States for the great, brilliant pragmatist uh, who will show us the way to solve this thing. Amen. Because Donald Trump is not it. Maybe Joe Biden is. I don't know. Kamala? Yeah. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But I feel like... I mean, personally, I need to be led. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think most people do. And I think most people want to be. Um, and, um, if, and, and they can be if they're done by someone who is empathetic and also firm. You know, like, uh, and I think it's an, not, not to infantilize a nation, but, you know, a great parent is someone who can understand if their child is in distress or doesn't, or, you know, and I mean distress like, hungry, tired, cranky, whatever, but can also delineate clear boundaries about um, what one has to do to get out of that distressed position. Like they just put up clear barriers. Like you can't go there. Or you can't do mm -hmm. this. That's how you become a proper functioning adult, frankly. You learn what boundaries are. And I think boundaries help organize a society and uh, our leaders who are willing to express boundaries and and ex and accept defeat if their idea didn't work. That's what we need. We need people who can stand up in that sort of way. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I know you have a hard stop at three o'clock. Uh, let me ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I'm chuckling because you're a university president, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on getting my university open again. That's the, that's the, the real challenge. But you know, the scholar in me, I mean, the, this publishing this book was a lot of fun um, because I was able to wear my my um, professor's hat instead of being a provost like I was at Northwestern when I when I wrote when I pulled the, the book together um, for putting the polishing touches on when I'm pre as president. It, it's a nice way to be to be reminded of the things that brought me to this world in the first place, the love of ideas, the desire to explain things, 
and to enjoy the written product. Um, so that's been great. And, and so I do keep the idea of a next project uh, on my mind and on my Vita as well. And that is um, a book that I've tentatively titled A History of Absence, Race and the Making of the Modern World. And it's, as I'm thinking about another short book, I mean, I don't think I'll be writing, I never wrote long books, but I definitely don't think that's part of my future. But, you know, I've written a number of essays that, that align with this ideology of, of um, you know, what would be called Ralph Ellison's, you know, racial erasure phenomenon. And I, you know, looking at the ways in which uh, institutions in this country have been built using black labor, black ideas and black culture, uh, but, but with great efforts deployed to erase those contributions. And, um, I mean, trust me, I could go on and on. I, I, yeah, I would love to talk to you about Ralph Ellison because Invisible Man is one of my favorite books. I think it's the great American novel. Yes. And, you know, kind of my take on it is, is he really just wants to be who he is That's and right. not be put in a box. He's always being put in a box at every yeah. moment in his life. And he's like, I just want to be Ralph Ellison, but nobody's yeah. letting me do this. Yeah. And that's what Americans want. They want to be that's individuals. Right. But Ralph right. couldn't do it. And I, I I love the book and I've read it many times. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show when that's done. I look um, forward to it. Yeah, great. So let me tell everyone, we've been talking to Jonathan Holloway about his book, The Cause of Freedom, A Concise History of African Americans. I recommend that everybody buy 10 copies and go give them to your friends and neighbors. I think that'd be a good idea. So, Jonathan, thanks very much for being on the show. I, I love that idea, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, great. Thanks very much.